0: Let us pray. Father. As we come to this moment it is a moment of. Great joy and delight as we open your word. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would shine the light into the darkness of our lives, that you would reveal any sin. Lord, that you would give us strength to confess it, that you might allow us to clearly see Lord, that you would give us spiritual insight into your word. And Lord, we ask that you would, by your divine grace and mercy, that you would see fit to shine the light of your love upon our gathering this morning. And Holy Spirit, that you would minister in our midst, in our lives, as you see fit. Lord, we confess before you that we are as open books. We know there is nothing There is nothing in our lives that we can hide from your knowledge. There is no place that we can go from your presence. And so this morning, as we are here, we are laid bare before you, before your word. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that in your gentle mercy, you would exercise your compassion toward us. Lord, that you would meet us right where we are. That you would administer healing by your spirit, by your word, that you would administer uh, the truth of your word, that you would speak even to those who are filled with sin sick souls this morning. Lord, that we would be able to exalt in your goodness and glorify your good name for it's in Christ's name and power, we pray. Amen. If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open to the Gospel of John, chapter 9, as Mr. Al spoke about a few moments ago. If you uh, don't have a copy of Scripture with you, you can uh, either look it up on your phone or you can use the chair back Bibles that are there in front of you. Uh, the text to be found on page 895 for John, chapter 9. <clears throat> you know, light can be a good thing. It's always a good thing. Uh, but light can have both positive and Negative effects. Maybe you don't get what I'm saying yet, but think about it. If you lived in Alaska, you might be able to testify to this because there are some places in Alaska where it's just daylight 24 hours a day for six months straight. At least anywhere that you live in Alaska, there's at least one day where you will have daylight for 24 hours, sunlight for 24 hours. Now, if... You live in Alaska and you like to sleep, you might you might have trouble with sleeping during the daylight. So you'd have to have shades or blinds right to cover the windows. You now, I remember <clears throat> I remember a time when I experienced both the positive and the negative side of light. You know, light lights good because it enables us to, to see, but it it can also have blinding effects in our lives. It can cause us to lose sight, actually you know, one afternoon. Uh, I was uh, a few years back, I, I was uh, I was I don't forget what I was doing. I was doing something and a, a friend of mine um, called and said, hey, man, I'm, I'm stuck uh, on the Red River north of the landing about six miles. My starter went out on my boat. We're sitting here at a sandbar. They've been out there all day, he and his family. And so I said, OK, well, I'll I'll come get you. So I went and I hooked up to my boat and I went down to the river and I put in and I started going out there was about mid afternoon. Well, they, you know, six miles is a pretty good distance, especially when you're towing somebody back in. And as I uh, as I hooked and began towing them, I began to realize that darkness was coming pretty quick, and I didn't have a light. I, I wasn't prepared uh, for being able to navigate the Red River at night. But fortunately, the, it was a full moon that night, and so I was able to see. We got about mile a mile back, uh, a mile from the landing, and a, a tugboat pushing a big barge comes around a bend in the river. And as soon as he straightened up, that light hit us. And I'm, of course, I'm pulling and I'm trying to get over close to the bank. But when that light hit, it blinded me. I couldn't see a thing. I couldn't even see the front of the boat. That and It's only a 17-foot boat, okay? So I couldn't even see the front of it, all right? I mean, it was so blinding. It, it, was, it was chaotic. I mean, it was pandemonium. I didn't know how close I was getting to the edge of the bank. I wasn't sure if I was going to run up on the bank. I wasn't sure if I was going to hit a rock jetty that was that was sticking out into the river. And so I, I tried to make my way to the shoreline, but I had lost all bearing. I couldn't see a thing. And it was probably about five minutes of not being able to see. I was wondering if this guy was ever going to see us. So finally he spotted us. And when he spotted us, he, he shined the light away. And, and so after my eyes adjusted for a few minutes... Well, you see me here today, so you know we made it back safely. (laughs) Let me tell you, when that light hit me, man, it was blinding. I couldn't see a thing. Both these realities are present in the text that we're looking at this morning. One man who's blind receives sight, and he sees light for the very first time, and it's glorious, it's grand, it's great. But then there are also some who are blinded by the light of Christ's revelation and in their blindness in seeing this light, they stubbornly remain in their opposition and they reject the truth of God. And what. John does in his gospel account here in chapter nine is he he masterfully leads us through these three scenes. And as he unfolds this sixth sign, he's been speaking about being the light of the world in chapter eight. And it's it's connected to chapter seven and chapter eight, where he's he's describing or he's telling about the the feast of tabernacles and how God's people have gathered to worship him in this great celebration. So in scene one. We see Jesus illuminating the darkness. So if you found your place in John chapter 9, read with me. Follow along, rather, as I read from verses 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man are his parents that he would be born blind. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. We need to note two important elements as we begin to look at this text this morning. And, And the first one is that Jesus performs a miracle. And in performing this miracle, he, he points us to see the authority and, and the power of Christ. John is pointing us and showing us Jesus is the one who has all authority and all power. His authority and power over darkness, He has authority and power over. Any type of sin, any type of deformity or any type of sickness or illness or any type of suffering or any type of. In ability, Christ has authority and power over it. Secondly, we need to also note that the blind man's journey is a commentary on every believer's journey of faith. We see that setting out from the beginning. Every believer's journey of faith can be seen through the journey that the blind man embarks on. And so first this morning, I, I want us to see this reality. Spiritual blindness is a malady, malady that affects every person. It's a malady that affects every person. So Jesus exerts power and authority over darkness in verses 1 and 2. It says, as he, as he passed by, he saw the blind man there from birth. You know, verse 1 is, is telling us that this is a congenital condition. This was a condition he was, he was born with. It wasn't because, verse 2, the disciples assume that, that sin and, and suffering go hand in hand. And so they ask Jesus in verse 2, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And in verse 3, Jesus replies and says, it was not this man who sinned and it wasn't his parents who sinned. In other words, his condition is, is something that he's born with. And it wasn't because of a specific sin that he committed or his parents. Instead, generally speaking, the the corruption of sin has caused this blindness. And the work of God in Christ is to redeem and to restore the brokenness of humanity. And so as Jesus passes by this guy who's blind and he's begging. He opens his eyes. He opens his eyes to see light for the first time. And what we need to understand in John's gospel is that darkness is portrayed as that which is the antithesis of the kingdom of God. And so in John 1, 4, we we read in the prologue of the gospel in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. John chapter three, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the garden By night because he was afraid that others would see. And so he comes under the cloak in the the guise of night. And in John 3.19, Jesus says the judgment that this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And so you see this antithesis, this this uh, this. Back and forth between light and darkness in the gospel of John. In fact, in verse 4 of chapter 9, he tells them night is coming when we will not be able to do any work. John 18, Judas betrays Jesus at night in the garden. As we continue walking through, we see Jesus focusing on the priority of his mission in verses 3 and 4. He answered them and said, it was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus goes to this man, finds him and exercises compassion and mercy to this undeserving blind beggar. The priority of his mission is seen in verse four when he says we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Restoration and redemption was the priority of Christ's mission. Brothers and sisters, I I would encourage us this morning and ask us, should our priority be any different? Is there any higher priority in this life than engaging in the works of God? You know, this leads us really to a a theology of vocation. Understanding that God has uniquely gifted us and by virtue of our salvation, he has called us to be his ambassadors, living as faithful servants of his kingdom. And really, no matter what our vocation. I think the gospel compels us that we must see ourselves as working for his glory. As engineers or, or as, as architects, we worship God through designing projects or, or sketching out drawings and building things. As, as parents, we worship God through our parenting and, and, and watching over our children and stewarding their lives to be worshipers of Christ. With whatever the vocation, we ought to see the work we do as bringing glory to God, whether we're salesmen or saleswomen our teachers, our CEOs, our CFOs, our administrative assistants, our pastors, and so on and so forth, fill in the blank. Here's the thing, we are created by God to give glory to God and to enjoy great satisfaction in living for His glory. Whether we're students, about to begin life, whether we're retired and enjoying the time of Retirement, whatever season we're in in life, the question we need to ask is. Are we engaging in the priority of Christ's mission? Do we see the priority of Christ's mission as being fleshed out in our own lives? Are we seeking to live according to the priority of Christ's mission wherever we are, whatever we're doing? Are we doing it all for the glory of God? Are we doing it for Our own self. Jesus focuses on the priority of his mission, but he also focuses on the urgency of his mission. Look at that last part of verse four. He says night is coming when no one can work. He invests his disciples with a sense of Urgency. As long as it is day, we will do this. But night is coming when no one will work. And this this points his disciples to the trauma and the triumph of the cross. It points his disciples to see that his time with them is limited. And as long as it's day, they must be engaging in the work. Verse 5, he says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Never has the light of God's glory shined so brightly in this world and through the incarnate life and ministry of Christ as he walked the earth. There was an urgency then and the disciples felt it in a few months he would endure the cross. There's also an urgency now. And throughout the Gospel of John, John unfolds the, the coming work and ministry of the Holy Spirit as, as he will give the Holy Spirit to, as Jesus will give and send the Holy Spirit to all who profess and believe upon him, upon his ascension. And so there's an urgency then, and then there's, a, there's an urgency now. I appreciate what the great Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said When he was gripped with this reality and he spoke of of his calling in this way, he says, I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. See, what Jesus is teaching us through the blind beggar is an illustration of what he's been teaching throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8 in the temple discourse. When he says, I am the I am the, the 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 life giving water, and when he says, I am the light of the world. Not only do we see spiritual blindness as a malady that affects every person, we we see that through the the blind man that he was born blind, it it was a condition that was thrust upon him, it wasn't something that he did to engage the condition. We also see that saving faith involves divine initiative and direct obedience. We see that in verses six and seven. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, he made clay of the spittle and he applied it to his eyes. And then he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. John tells us that word means sin. So he went away, he washed and it says he he came back seeing. Jesus passes by this man and. And as he passes by, he chooses to display his light and life-giving power to open the blind man's eyes. And he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I want us to see the significance that's tied to the pool of Siloam. John clues us in when he says it, it means it sent, right? But the pool of Siloam, this is the pool where the priest would lead the procession during the Feast of Tabernacles. They would lead the procession of priests down to the south part of the city, to the pool of Siloam. They would draw water and then they would lead the procession back and they would ascend the Temple Mount and they would stand before the altar. And then he would they would pour out the water on the altar. And that was that was the context in which Jesus says. The water he gives will well up within the believer for eternal life that he gives eternally satisfying water it was during this celebration that they would remember God's provision and, and God's blessing and that they would, they would see that God had sent these blessings to his people and he had provided for them as he led them out of bondage to, from Egypt. And so this was part of, of this Feast of Tabernacle and a celebration and certainly part of the Pool of Siloam. But I think secondly, John and Jesus intends for the pool to symbolize His role as the sent one. In other words, Jesus is the greatest blessing sent from the father to his creation. Jesus as the one sent by the father on divine mission, he's sent by the father on divine mission to restore and to redeem the brokenness of humanity. And we see in this text that he will not fail in accomplishing the mission that he has set out to accomplish. So he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, indicating that it's only through the means of the sent one that the blind will receive sight. In other words, we must be washed and cleansed by the sent one. We must be washed and cleansed by Christ. It's only through obedience to Christ's word that a man, a woman, a boy, a girl can receive any sight. When Christ's light shines in our darkness, we must choose obedience or disobedience to believe or to reject. And the miracle of Christ's light, this miracle, it demonstrates Christ's divine power over darkness. It demonstrates his authority and it evidenced his priority and his urgency in doing the works of God. I want to ask us this morning, is engaging in doing the work of God, is that a priority? Are we urgently pursuing that in our own lives, in our own vocations? Do We see the need. Or spiritual sight in our own lives. The second scene moves us through the investigation of the miracle. We see it from verses eight all the way through verse thirty-four. John records four interviews. And so I just want to quickly walk through those interviews and highlight for us what John is teaching us through the interviews. In verses eight through twelve, we see the first interview with the interview with his neighbors. The man was transformed from a, a blind beggar to a seeing contributor. In verse 8, therefore, the neighbors and, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not, this not the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, it, it doesn't look like him. But he kept saying, I'm the one, it's me. And so he was transformed. He wasn't ashamed to testify about what happened to him in verses 10 and 11. Look, notice what happened in verses 10 and 11. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered him. He said, the man who is called Jesus made clay. He anointed my eyes and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. He simply retells them. He just he just gives them the facts about what happened because the transformation speaks for itself he just lays out the facts and tells them you know and i think this powerfully illustrates both the simplicity and the mystery of the salvation process in our in our fallen sinful human condition we're blinded from seeing and from recognizing our need for a savior and so we see that Jesus sought him out and mercifully healed him and demonstrated his power in his life. We realize that apart from the Lord seeking out of of the blind man, he would still remain blind as would the blind sinner remain in his sin. If God and Christ had not reached out to blind sinners, we wouldn't be saved. And this is exactly what he has been teaching in this tabernacle discourse, in the bread of life discourse. And in John 644, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him out and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. But notice something about the blind man's healing. It was completed through an act of obedience. He followed obediently what the Lord Jesus told him and commanded of him. He said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And just as a blind man, sinners are given spiritual sight when we humbly obey and embrace the truth of the gospel. It's the point of the first interview. The second interview occurs between the Pharisees and the healed blind man in verses thirteen through seventeen, and this is within the scope of of normalcy for the Pharisees to interview the healed man. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and I, I think he's teaching his disciples that the priority of his mission must not be overshadowed by the pursuit of religious tradition, because look at what happened in verse fourteen. It was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Jesus intentionally healed this man on the Sabbath. Just as he did with the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And his point in healing the blind man on the Sabbath and the lame man on the Sabbath was to show that he himself is Lord over the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was given to man as a day of rest to allow man to glorify God in his rest because rest is good. And so we understand Jesus values this rest. But he values it in a different way. The law, which states, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It was not to be burdensome. The law was to be freeing. The law was to allow them the freedom of enjoying rest and of, of worshiping God. In Christ, we experience true rest. And that's what he wants us to see, that in him we experience his true rest. In fact, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is Light, You see, but the Pharisees are rejecting Jesus in verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying this. This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. They were rejecting Jesus because of their idolatrous pursuit of religious tradition. They had missed the point of experiencing the joy of worship and the joy of being with him. And Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, is revealing and working out God's plan of salvation to encounter God through Christ is the very intention and fulfillment of the Sabbath. And this blind man encounters God through Christ. The healed blind man understands his truth with greater and greater clarity. He's beginning to see what the spiritually blind Pharisees refused to see. Jesus himself had come from God. And when asked in verse 17, who do you say or what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, he replied and said, he's a prophet. He knew this was the one who had come from God. The third interview was between the Pharisees and the blind man's parents. They didn't believe him. They didn't want to believe him. And so in verse verses 18 and 19, we see the details of the interview beginning to unfold. And, and really, the details of the interview validate Jesus's miracle. The reason they seek out the man's parents is because they didn't believe him. The Jews didn't believe it of him. And so they they ask his parents and they question him, saying, is this your son? In verse 19. Who you say was born blind, then how does he now see in verse 20? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. And from verses 20 through 23, we see that his parents really abandon him for fear of the Jews. They're fearful of what will happen when they tell the truth about this person, Christ. And so they cower before the Jews you know I, I think we can grasp maybe a sense of david's words in psalm 27 of his cry of fearless trust in the lord psalm 277 says hear o lord when i cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me when you said seek my face my heart said to you your face o lord i shall seek do not hide your face from me do not turn your servant away in anger You've been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. Listen, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. The threat of being excluded from God's covenant people was too much for his parents to bear. And so they defer and say, Ask him. He is of age. And so what do the Pharisees do? They go back and they have a fourth interview the second interview with the blind man that was healed and in that interview with the blind man that was healed I, I think we can take we can take courage from his response we can learn something from the way that this healed man responds to the religious elite the religious leaders of the day we see in his persecutors the pharisees maybe a similar response that We might even expect today when we are proclaiming and sharing the truth of the gospel. People still reject the truth of the work of Christ. And I would challenge us. May we be as resolute to stand even in light of perhaps parental abandonment in the gospel. May we be as resolute to stand against the attacks of the world when they come against us and against the truth of the gospel. May we be as resolute to stand for the truth of the gospel and the work of Christ in our lives, even when perhaps a spouse is rejecting the gospel and the work of Christ. We can draw encouragement from this this man who was healed and had to stand up against his persecutors. The fourth interview continues to reveal the spiritual blindness of the shepherds. These false shepherds, the Pharisees, they reject Jesus as the miracle working Messiah and they call on the healed man to do the same in verse 24. Look, so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, but look at his response in verse 25. He answered. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And then he continued in verse 30. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners. The man's still speaking. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, verse 33, he could do nothing. And we see in his response, he resolutely stands on this truth. The truth about Jesus and his incarnation, that Christ himself is the one who has come from God. He's learning and, and beginning to know that the only way to truly bring glory to God is through believing and confessing Jesus Christ is the one sent from God. In other words, there's no other way whereby which man will be saved. There's no other way by which man will receive sight. There's no other way whereby a man can receive spiritual illumination, spiritual sight for the things of the kingdom of God. The Pharisees biased perspective against Jesus caused caused them to deny the undeniable and to refute the irrefutable. If you read through there in verses twenty six to twenty nine, we see that they stand stubbornly opposed to Christ. But the healed blind man clung to the truth of Christ's work in his life And what I want us to see this morning is that when obedience to Christ is pitted against any earthly consequence, let us be affirmed that obedience to Christ is always the right choice to walk in obedience to Christ. The interviews have provided the healed man with an opportunity to exercise perseverance in the midst of hostility. And in scene three, we see the result of his perseverance through spiritual sight. And scene three shows us spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. In scene three, beginning in verse thirty five, we see really three truths regarding salvation. And those three truths regarding salvation are really kind of a. Uh, An inclusio that that brackets off chapter 9 from how he began and how he ends. You notice after verse 7, Jesus kind of disappears from the scene. And then the, the blind man is left to, to kind of work out this, this salvation. And, and as he's walking through these different interviews and vocalizing his faith, this is the work of God at life at work in his life, drawing him. And we, we even see a parallel of that in, in that the work that Christ begins in, in the life of a person and drawing them, he ultimately sees it to fulfillment and to, to conclusion. And so first, in verse thirty five, we see salvation occurs through divine initiative. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? So Jesus goes and he finds the blind, the healed blind man, and he then begins to ask him a question. The question, he says, do you believe in the son of man? In other words, he says, do you believe that the Lord is the one who has come down out of heaven and that God has sent him to walk the earth in the form of man? And that leads us to the second truth of salvation in this text, verses 36 through 38. That is that salvation occurs through right response. Verse 36, he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him. You have both seen him and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. He's progressed in his relationship from the man who received a miracle and was a beneficiary of the powerful work of God through Christ in his life to now the point where he openly confesses the lordship of Christ. He doesn't just believe the miracle Jesus performed. Instead, he believes in the person of Messiah. Notice what he says next. The third truth is this. Salvation results in true God glorifying worship. Verse 38, the second part. Look at what he did at the end. He worshiped him. He said, Lord, I believe. And then he worshiped him. He no longer lives in physical worship. Our spiritual darkness, his eyes have been illumined and his spiritual eyes have been opened. And now he sees the Lord of glory. He doesn't just see light for the first time. He sees the light of God, the light of the world. And his eyes are opened. And in the healed man, we, we see a model for every believer who surrenders To the Lordship of Christ's enduring persecution. The blind beggar progresses. It's not enough. And we need to see this. It's not enough to believe in a man called Jesus. Or to believe in a prophet. Or to believe in a man of God. We must believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. God the Son. The incarnate one. What he's saying here is that all who confess their spiritual blindness will receive sight. Look at verse 38, 39. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. All who think they can see will find that judgment awaits because they've rejected, verse 40, they've rejected Jesus the Messiah. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? In other words, the, the, the text here, it, it requires or it asks for, it seeks a negative answer. These religious leaders are saying, we're not blind too, are we? Certainly we're not blind too. But the reality is Jesus is telling them that they are blind But because they say they can see, their sin remains. Really, there are two realities that we're faced with at the end of the text, and they are mutually exclusive. The light of the world, Jesus, illuminates the darkness, granting life to all who confess belief and dependence on him. Secondly, the light of the world, Jesus, blinds all who are unwilling to confess belief and dependence on him. I ask you this morning, are you, you kind of like I was when that light hit me in the eyes and I couldn't see anything in front of me? I was blinded by the light. I wasn't able to see the how to navigate anywhere. Are, are, are you like the blind beggar? Who receives sight, confesses Christ as Lord. Wh- which one of those describe you this morning? Believer, I want to ask you to consider theology of vocation this morning in your work. And are, are you prioritizing the mission of Christ as he prioritized his mission? That he was to engage in the work of God for the glory of God? Do we see the urgency in engaging in the work of Christ in our in our daily lives? Believe, are you discouraged? Have you faced some difficult battles where people are rejecting not only the gospel, but you feel like they're rejecting you? Listen, stand resolute on this truth. That Christ is the one that gives light. He illuminates the darkness. It's by Christ that we receive light. He is the light of the world. And as the light of the world, he will redeem and restore the brokenness of humanity. He will redeem and restore the brokenness in our lives. And he will redeem and restore the brokenness in our families. He will redeem and restore our lives for the glory of God. This is the mission, the priority and the urgency of the work of Christ. I want to challenge you this morning as you consider and reflect upon Jesus, Messiah, light of the world. Maybe this morning you need to confess. That you are blind and that you need the light of Christ spiritually to open your eyes. Maybe that needs to be your confession this morning. And if it is, I want to invite you to do that right where you are to to tell Christ you, you repent of sin and that you you trust him, you believe upon him, you believe upon the gospel for the very first time and ask him that he would illuminate your eyes spiritually so that you might truly see and he would remove you from blindness, from darkness. Maybe this morning for you, it needs to be a recommitment to the priority of Christ's mission and the urgency of Christ's mission. I pray wherever you're at this morning that uh, that the Lord will uh, will use his word to challenge and exhort and encourage you. Let me close us in prayer. Father, as we think upon your word and seek to apply it into our own lives, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to do that work of application. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would that you would strengthen us to follow you as you lead. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open the eyes of the blind, give sight, Father, to the spiritually blind, that that they may confess you as Lord and know the goodness of the light of the world. Lord, we pray for those who are still in darkness, that you would remove the bondage, remove those barriers in their lives. And Lord, we also pray for our own lives, that we would, be your ambassadors, that we would see and be gripped with the reality of priority and urgency in the mission that you have called us to. In our vocation as a congregation, that we would be about making disciples, which in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?